Have you ever worked and worked and worked on all these little details of a project and then you suddenly think to yourself, is anyone even going to notice this stuff? I mean, if I make this project like two, three, four percent better, does that matter? I'd argue yes. Yes, it matters. Others might not be able to point out all the tiny little details that you spent meaningful time from your life to figure out, but when they let that final experience just wash over them, they'll walk away going, whoa, that was great. Or maybe, damn, I want some more. Or if they're in your industry and they do what you do, they might experience what you've created and go, wait, wait a second, we can do that? Oh yeah, yes, we can. And today, we try to understand a whole bunch of those tiny little details and techniques that help us do exactly that. Make something that others go, wow, that was great. I want some more. This is Three Clips. Hey there, hello, and hi. I'm your host, Jay Akunzo, and on this show, we help makers and marketers understand great podcasts a few little pieces at a time. Three Clips is part of Marketing Showrunners, which is a media company that covers and advances the growing movement of marketers making shows. We have subscribers from Adobe, Amazon Prime, Salesforce, Shopify, MailChimp, and thousands more. We want to build the marketing industry's most insightful and, if I do say so myself, the most entertaining resource for all things podcasts and video shows. I mean, my gosh, why is so much business content so dry? Today, we talked to Sam Balter of HubSpot, and he is running a show that is anything but dry. Now, Sam's main job is to grow the audience around HubSpot's three podcasts, but he also hosts and produces one of them, the unbelievably hilarious, entertaining, and often moving podcast, Weird Work. That's the show that we're going to deconstruct today. In our conversation, he and I talk about the unusual ways that he looks at downloads as a key data point. And he actually speaks to loyalty and passion, not vague ideas of more and more passive listeners. Yes, you can actually determine loyalty and passion by looking at downloads. What? He'll go into that. But the thing I admired most about Sam and the thing I actually got lost in when we talked was just how deeply he thinks about the way others experience his show. He notices stuff that most don't. He has this kind of vision, like he can see the code of the matrix, where all these little moving things around him that most people ignore, he actually proactively sees and therefore controls. It makes his content so much better than the average podcast out there, and he's super generous in sharing what all of that stuff is to him so that we can use it too. All that, plus... The most important ingredient for making delicious pizza that somehow actually applies to making podcasts too. That's coming up after the break. Stay with me. Today's episode is sponsored by our presenting sponsor, Casted, the first platform built specifically for B2B marketers who make podcasts. Casted is the place for marketers to upload their shows and distribute it to all the various listening apps available. But lots of hosting platforms do that. So Casted goes further. They offer episode transcriptions, they catalog your content into a searchable database for future use and other teammates, and they generate episode landing pages complete with key takeaways resources for listeners, and my favorite feature, a clipping function so you can actually snip the best quotes and share them far and wide. Casted is building the B2B marketers all-in-one podcasting platform. Finally, podcast tools built specifically for us, not for the media and not for hobbyists, for marketers. Learn more at casted.us. 
And now let's get back to deconstructing the podcast Weird Work with host Sam Balter of HubSpot. And to kick us off, let's actually play the theme song of that show. If you've wanted yet feared to do work that is weird, this is the show you just need to hear. I'm Sam Balter, and this is Weird Work. Now let's listen to them speak about their jobs, which are quite unique. Weird Work. Okay, so you're getting a bonus clip. How about that? Because that's not one of the three clips, but the theme is so good, I wanted to start with it. Where where did that come from? That's you singing, right? Oh my God, no, no, uh, I can't, oh. I can't sing at all. That was actually one of our guests for the first season. This guy Matt Farley, who lives in Danvers, and at the time when we interviewed him, he had written, I think, about seventeen thousand songs. And right now he's written about 20,000 songs. So he was both a guest on Weird Work and the writer for the theme song. So what was the, what's his weird job? His, his weird job is I've written 17,000 songs. <laughs> so he is a genius in some ways. Like he, he just churns out music. And his thing is like, I would call him sort of like a blue collar musician who has taken advantage of Spotify and streaming in just like an unprecedented way where he'll write songs like he'll do a uh, birthday album. So the birthday album will go like this. The first song will be happy birthday, Sam, and he'll sing happy birthday, Sam. And then the next song will be happy birthday, Jay, and he'll sing happy birthday, Jay. And so he just keeps writing all of these songs, some of them real songs, some of them funny, some of them just like kind of clickbaity headlines. And he'll just make song after song after song, not looking to get a huge audience, but just getting like a lot of plays across all of his music. So the the theme song is great because it has a tonal relevancy too. It's not just describing the show, nor is it just like a jingle you found on like YouTube's audio library for free. Like there's there's purpose. It's funny. You kind of have you match the quirkiness, or he matched your quirkiness as a host. So I, I always feel like that's such a wasted thing on most shows. Like we start our show with a theme song because reasons. Yeah, like it, it's like I guess we could like we could just have some tone that appears at the at the start of it, but like that's way more fun. It is a little bit divisive. Some people absolutely hate the song. Some people love it, and like to me, I think it epitomizes the show in a lot of ways, like the tone. And it's like if you're not into the theme song, you might not like the show that much. I, I thought, I mean, th- that's good. It's a filter, like it's a, the first filter for the the whole show. So, speaking of the show, before we get into the actual clips, if if you had to describe your show to people that haven't heard it before, rather than just meander through a description, why don't we do it this way? If you had to pitch your show, like Hollywood boardroom style. Mm-hmm. Using that like old template, like it's it's like X meets Y meets Z, or it's like this meets that. How would you pitch Weird Work as a show? Okay, so if I had to do it as X meets Y meets Z, I guess it would be like Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends meets Dirty Jobs with a host who's curious like Alton Brown. Wow. Okay, a couple things. Have you done that before? Because that was quick. You, I'm not. I'm not for listeners. I am not removing like a giant pause here. That was instant. Yeah, I mean, it's something like I I think about all the time because because when I say weird work, I'll either describe the show or I'll start describing the guest as opposed to the show. So I'll say I host this show, Weird Work. 
have guests like international pizza consultant, Elvis impersonator, ASMR artist, dinosaur erotica writer. And then from there, people instantaneously get it. But if I had to use that format, I think those are the ones that I've picked just because some people have mentioned that to me before. They're like, oh, this is like dirty jobs. They're like, oh, you're curious, like Alton Brown is curious. So Weird Work is a seasonal show and you're in season two uh, yep. while we're speaking now. You've explored a ton of things. Can you just like fire off a few of the the things you're most proud that you, you explored? We're going to explore an episode that's near and dear to my heart because it involves pizza. But what are some of the examples you like to cite? I know you, you gave a few before, but do you have like a top three personal episodes you can just list really quick? Okay. Top three personal. Hand model uh, was one of my favorites. Why? Hand model. Okay. So hand model was really good. There's, I would say there's two types of episodes that we have in Weird Work or, or there's a bunch, but but basically two. There's, I know that job, but I don't know how it works. And then there's, that's a job, right? And so like hand model was super interesting because it's like, how does hand models get paid? What does it take to be really good at being a hand model? And then you realize that this woman as like a hand model is doing insane stuff to practice being the best hand model. She's like learning to water her plants from like three stories up because pouring water is such an important part of being a hand model. She's like recording herself, like opening bottles, like in for hundreds and hundreds of times. So that when she shows up on the shoot of like a beer commercial, she opens the bottle and pours it perfectly. It like gives you an insight of like, when you see that moving forward, it's hard to not think about how interesting it is. It just changed my perspective so much on that particular job and the life you have to live to have that job. ASMR, I think, was one of my favorites, personally, just because it was what the first interview I did. And it was this whole YouTube subculture. I didn't really understand. And Heather Feather's story is just truly like incredible. And we also ended up getting into a lot of just like what it's like to be a woman on the internet. And so it's this very like interesting topic of ASMR. But there's this really emotional component about being like, what does it mean to be on the internet? What does it mean to be a woman on the internet and be basically harassed all the time, have all these issues, and still keep moving forward to produce content? One that I really like is I Press Human Ashes into Vinyl Records. That's another one that's really great. It's about a guy who, after you die, he'll take your ashes and put them into a custom-made vinyl record. And that's sort of like the way that he wanted to go and has started to do that as a service for other people. And just for people who caught the way you phrased that, you phrased it as, I press people's ashes into vinyl records because that's you take that quote and that's the title of the episode. Yes. Um, just so people understand you, you do not do this. That's the title of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't personally, I don't personally do this. I don't think I'd be very good at it. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit squeamish and like almost and like uh, death is always a little bit tough for me. So I don't know if I can handle it, but it's a very, very interesting episode. So you don't press human ashes into vinyl records. What do you do as a day job? <laughs> As a day job, I host HubSpot's podcast, Weird Work, and I work on marketing and audience growth strategy for our other podcasts, such as The Growth Show, Skill Up, things like that. Yeah. So to find that, the other show is Growth Show. It's an interview series, success story kind of based show. I know I'm painting with generalities and you, and you work hard to differentiate it within that trope. But what you know, you just use a couple phrases that I think a lot of marketers sort of if I were to say that to their face, they would nod and be like, oh, yeah, of course. And I'll, I'll, I'll be 
I'll play dumb because it's a pretty authentic dumb, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. What, what, what did you actually mean by those phrases? If you could just repeat that and delve into it a bit. Yeah. So I think I one thing, one thing for us is like HubSpot is a big content creating company and we want to be able to create podcasts. Like we want to be create podcast content because that's where people are going to consume information, entertainment, inspirational stuff. So basically, we want to be able to create content where people are. But just having everybody at a company just go off and create podcasts is not going to result in good podcasts. And they're not going to be successful podcasts. So what we want to do is like, we want to make shows that serve specific functions, like maybe The Grow Show is more about brand building. Weird Work is more about mass appeal. If you look at Skill Up, that's a lot more about like enablement and education. And we want shows that are going to have a growing audience in each of those areas. So my job is to make sure those audiences are growing. So like, what are we doing to make sure that we get more listeners in weird work? What are we doing to make sure that skill up information gets in the hands of our customers? What are we doing to make sure that the grow show is getting us press coverage and other stuff? So it's like, there's a lot of trying to take that content and generally grow that audience. What are the things that you look at to make sure that this is a good show? Because downloads is directionally nice, but doesn't necessarily speak to the efficacy of a, of a program. So how are you justifying the existence of these very creative vehicles for a company that's incredibly metric driven? Yeah. And I'd say that's become like a very large part of my job is a lot of internal education about podcasting, about the podcast opportunity as a brand. So that's a lot of what I've been trying to do is move of like, how do we take some of the content we have and move it into this format in a way that's really engaging? For us, it's like, I say that we should be data curious, not data driven, right? Because one of the things is if we only looked at the data, we are never going to make uh, something that's unique, right? We're only going to be following a trend that already exists. We're only going to be able to, like if, if HubSpot years and years ago was trying to think up a term or a marketing strategy and they were like, inbound marketing sounds good. Well, there's no search traffic on that. We probably shouldn't do it. That would be a terrible idea. So sometimes like you can't be entirely data driven, but you could be data curious. So the things that I look at in data, like one of the things is downloads is directionally really good. I think a better metric for us to look at is maybe the first day downloads, right? Like how many people are just jumping on a new episode right when it comes out? And the reason I'm interested in that is because that's like a measure of how loyal that audience is. Like how captivated are they by this content? And if the first day downloads are not as good, it's like, was this the episode? Was it the episode before it that wasn't as good? What is like causing people to not want to just completely just be like, weird work Wednesday, this is what I'm going to listen to. So I listen to, I look at a lot of that. I like to look at engagement data. So I like to make sure that people are consuming roughly the entire episode. Um, because if they're dropping off at a certain point, like a lot of our stuff is narrative in a way. So it's like, are they missing a portion of the story because of the way we told it? And then also something that we do pay attention to and have looked at in the past is we've run ads. Like we have run ads on our podcast for HubSpot Academy. And one of the things that we wanted to test was like, do these ads work? And our goal was like, as long as these ads are working like within the same range as like Facebook or like Google, then we're in a really good spot. And it turned out they were. And then because of that, we've been able to do some more interesting things with ads like 
give them away to our customers or tell customer stories during the ad spots. So those are kind of the things we look at. We're curious about the data. It should inform directions, but it shouldn't determine what the content is, right? Like it shouldn't be something that's going to say, we have to tell the story in under 20 minutes because we read somewhere that that's the right amount of time. Like we're not going to necessarily make a call like that. But if we know that most people's commute are 40 minutes and we want people to be able to listen to this on their commute, we know, okay, that's a good kind of line where we're curious about the data, but we're not going to let it completely dictate what we do. I love that answer so much. I want to marry it and have little baby answers with it. <laughs> yeah, like data curious, man. It's a good way to live. Like, like, Because oh, I was listening to a talk about podcasting in emerging markets and somebody was like, true crime is big everywhere. But if you just like that doesn't mean the only shows we should produce in Germany or Latin America or in, you know, Japan are true crime shows because they don't have all these other types of shows that would probably be interesting as well. So like we don't want to lock ourselves into that. All right, let's get into the clips here. So the first clip I have is actually how you open a very particular episode. So this is an episode titled, I'm an international pizza consultant. And here's a clip from your open. I want to ask a simple question. What is your dream job? Strip away every taboo, no direction, wayward ambition nonsense. Dream job. For many of you, it might involve animals of some sort. And we'll get there later on this season. But first, something universal. Now, if you were clever enough to read the episode title, then you already know. Today, we're talking the gooey, melted, crust and chrome grease vehicle we all know and love, pizza. You've got your classics, Sicilian squares, Neapolitan or Marguerite pizza, Greek. Then there's your city varieties, New York, Chicago, St. Louis. You even got your call me by your other name options, like a calzone, flatbread, or stromboli. And if you're Scottish, you deep fry that shit. It's real. Have a fun Google on that one. Because as writer Scott Kiernan says, pizza, after all, is universally beloved. It's the Beyonce of foodstuffs. You either like it in one capacity or another, or you're lying. <laughs> so I love, I love the rough cut of the music for the you're lying punchline. I thought it was a good payoff. What are your thoughts hearing your voice as a narrator? It's horrible at first. Yeah, I really hated hearing my voice as a narrator in the beginning. And I still have trouble with it sometimes. But at this, at this point, it's like become very analytical. Like I just am like, what did I do well? What was good in that part? What was bad in that part? And I think I've gotten a lot better at like stripping away the sort of like self doubt part of it and more just looking at the part that's like, What's good about that? What was bad about that intonation? What was good about that speed? What was bad about that speed? Because at the end of the day, most people hate hearing their own voice. So I've kind of just gotten over it. And now I'm just very like, okay, that was good, bad, and can look at it that way. Can you point to anything you've gotten better at? Yeah. Yeah. So I think in terms of things I've gotten better, I've gotten better at intonation. Like I like the way I said pizza in that clip. Like pizza, pizza. Like, that's funny. That took a lot of takes to get it to the right, like, funny tone. But I think that part turned out well. 
As an interviewer, the thing that I've gotten a little bit better with, but still struggle with is asking one question as opposed to asking three or four questions in a single sentence. So instead of being like, Jay, how long have you been doing this podcast? Has it been fun for you? And like, where are you thinking of going with the whole thing? Just saying, Jay, how long have you been doing this podcast? It's it's hard. End of question. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like one thing as an interviewer has been an enormous struggle because it's like sometimes you realize you're really you know screwing with your guest because they don't know which question in a set of questions to answer and you're not giving them a clear priority of which question matters. So that's one thing. It's just like trying to get better at that part of it. You open that clip with a big question that you want the listener to think about, not a bunch of housekeeping, not a bunch of like meandering explanation or summary of what to expect in the episode. Why? I, I mean, why? Like, why would I? It's like, why don't we get a, I don't like, I get that a lot of people do the whole like housekeeping thing, but I don't really understand what it's for in the context of our show. And also we don't have that much time. We're trying to keep like a relatively tight episode and we want to set up the most interesting thing in the beginning because people should be like hooked and interested in the beginning. And the title is going to partially get them there. But what about pizza is going to be like a bigger concept? What is it going to be like larger idea in this episode? We want to set that off right off the bat. Plus the music is sweet right in the beginning too. Like that also hooks you. It's like that old phrase. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. When you host the show, also it's how you start. Also, it's the stuff in the middle. So new plan, have a plan. Like people just turn on the microphone and word vomit or they're like, I got to jump right to the calls to action because this is marketing. And they strip away all the things that you're supposed to do because what is an episode if not this like linear experience with one rule sitting over the whole decision-making process, which is get them to the end. That's the one goal. Get them to the end. It's the golden rule. And most people throw that out and they give you the most boring stuff right away. And it drives me up a wall. Like, what if, like, imagine if an email came to you and it was like, hey, Jay, this is an email. Emails are a good form of communication. And in this email, I'm going to talk to you about an event that's coming up. And then it provides the details of an event. That would be like insane. No one would write that email or read that email. But for some reason in podcasts, people really like to do that right off the bat. One of the things that I also think about is like we're producing an infotainment show, right? Like that's, I think that's the category that I see us in in a lot of ways is like we want to inform and we want to entertain. And I think when I look at the show, it's like we have moments that are inspiring. And a lot of those moments that are inspirational are connected to the big idea. We have moments that are educational and that's often connected to the how did somebody get into this job? Or like, what are the nuts and bolts of this job? And then we have moments that are just kind of entertaining. And usually when people are talking about how they got into the work that they're in, you know, how they got into this weird job, that's usually an entertaining portion. So for us, it's like we hit entertainment, we hit education, we hit inspiration, we give ourselves a nice format so that every interview when I'm going in, I know what to stick to. I know what I'm trying to get out of this interview that's going to make a good episode. All right, let's go to the second clip now. So folks like Anthony help others open pizza joints the world over. But if you've ever hit the bricks internationally, you've no doubt run into a pizza hut, be it New York, Jakarta, or Santiago, Chile. I mean, someone's opening those shops. 
So what makes Anthony's work any different? I see the pizza world is split into like three different categories of international pizza operations. So the first one is uh, the, the big four American chains, Pizza Hut, yep. Domino's, uh, Little Caesars, and Papa John's. And they operate all over the world. And their, their mission in life is to make the same pizza everywhere they go. Yeah. Then you have the second group of people, the VPN Neapolitan pizza makers, like certified experts in Naples pizza. And they go around the world and they're trying to make the same pizza everywhere in the world. And then there's me, and I'm going around the world and I'm never making the same pizza twice because when I go to a place, I want to have a conversation with that local food culture and food system. So in Brazil, we use Brazilian flour. You know, in Thailand, I found a Thai kid who has a mozzarella making company. You know, you're not going to get the same thing that you see everywhere. You're going to get something that's unique to that location. Why was that an important question to ask right there? Like, why bring up sort of the the what of his job so soon in the episode? So I think what's really important about this clip is it contextualizes the job a lot, right? At first, you're going to see the title of international pizza consultant, and you're going to think like, that is a weird job. That's crazy. He's probably the only person in the world who does this. So I think it's important to be like, this is a subset of a much larger thing that's going on that you would obviously expect, but it also helps make him contextualize within like the larger scheme of pizza consultants, but also what makes him unique. I also like the way, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, when he was describing the big four American chains. So I'm Italian American and I grew up outside New Haven, which has nationally ranked pizza and it's like a religion in that area. So I have very strong feelings on pizza. And <laughs> when he lists the big chains, he's like, their job is to make the same pizza everywhere they go. And you're like, yeah. Were you acknowledging that those pizzas are trash or is that like a verbal tick? <laughs> right. I mean, like, look, I'll house a Domino's pizza just like everybody else. Like, I'm very happy to eat that kind of pizza. It's fine. The big four chains are fine. Not my personal preference. I would not go to them if I had a choice. But yeah, they're okay. It was more just like, uh, I don't like that. Like making the same pizza everywhere you go, every single place in the world, you're making the same pizza. Like it is kind of a little bit boring. Well, okay. That was a pseudo leading question because if that's the way you are, like making the same thing everywhere you go is boring. And, you know, you make a serialized thing with your show. How do you ensure that every episode while the content obviously changes because everyone's story and then everyone's job, of course, is different, you profile them. Like, how, how do you keep it refreshing for you to make sure it's not like, okay, now we capture what they do. Now we go into like how they got there. Now it's like, you know what I mean? Like, how do you keep yourself super emotionally invested in what could feel rote over time? Yeah, I uh, did not expect that this pizza question was going to get turned around on the podcast. Bam! That's how you host. Just kidding. <laughs> No. Okay. So I think it's a good question. Like, how do you keep something fresh yet consistent is sort of like what I'm reading into that. And for us, it's like, yes, we have the three major parts of the episode, nuts and bolts of the job, big idea, personal story, right? We have those pieces. One, you can make something unique in each situation with those just like pizza, right? Pizza's got dough, cheese, sauce, and then there could be a million different variations of how you make that. 
And so for us, it's like, yeah, we can have the same three parts, but they could be so different for each guest. For each guest, we can focus more on big ideas in one, or we can do this, or we can rearrange it. And we also do things like sometimes we go on site, sometimes we do phone interviews over the phone, and those sound very different, but it's still within that same format. Did the, I don't know if it, it came up in this episode or maybe you just know this, but are you familiar with this concept in baking dough called the starter? Yes. Yes, very much. <laughs> I used to, I still bake bread from time to time, but I was a big fan of uh, baking bread. Do you have a starter in your home? Not at the moment. Uh, I've, I've, I've killed some. <laughs> so there you go. Like, I mean, it, you were referring to it like it's a thing that lives with you. So the starter for people who don't know is a really simple mixture of flour and water that essentially, once you let it ferment over time, it forms the basis of making good dough and you feed it and you cultivate it and it stays with you. So I mentioned being from outside New Haven, my favorite pizza place is also the pizza place I think has the best pizza on planet Earth. And I've, I've been to Italy and tried multiple places there, Sally's Pizza. And so Sally's has had their starter for their dough for like 50 plus years. I mean, they just keep cultivating. It's obviously not the same actual molecules of stuff. It, it changes, evolves, and they dip into it when they make new dough. But it's been the same basis that they just keep cultivating. And I know some people like if they're home bakers, some people will give their starter like a name, like it's a pet or something. By the way, I don't have a starter, but I think I would call mine the Yeasty Boys because <laughs> I'm ridiculous. Anyways, the reason I brought this up is like I only learned about the starter because I was a snarky kid and I asked the waiter at Sally's once how they could be any different from their biggest competitor, which was like two blocks away called Peppy's. I, you know, I thought he would give me an equally snarky answer, but it was kind of thoughtful. He goes, so we both have access to the same cheese. We can both make the same sauce. We can both put on the same toppings. And he's like, the secret is the starter. And I found that when you make a thing, especially a thing lots of other people are making, like say a podcast, the starter is you. Like, yeah, maybe other people have profiled odd jobs or have profiled success stories. Maybe other people have deconstructed podcasts on their shows. And so I'm kind of doing a derivative of theirs or a copy of theirs. But no other show is hosted by Sam Balter. No other show is hosted by me that covers this thing, says the guy who hosts way too many shows. But the person and the people behind the work is the starter. And I feel like if you just kind of let who you are come through a lot, it will inherently be different. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a point to like, at least starting out hosting the show, you want to just copy other people, right? Like you want to just do what other people are doing, because that seems like the right thing to do. And the more you try and like, sound like Ira Glass, or like, there's probably going to be a bunch of people that are going to start sounding like Michael Barbaro or things like that, the like less interesting it's going to be. And I think that was something at least for me to get over is like, you have to let whatever's making your show unique stand out versus trying to copy Domino's. You know what I mean? Like, like, like a little tiny pizza shop that made a pizza that tastes just like Domino's pizza would not become as successful as Domino's. Yeah. I mean, what, what kills a lot of created work is artifice, right? It's like it's it's a fabrication of what the the original thing is. But I also think it's a specific type of artifice. It's artifice without the intent to somehow be different, unique yourself. So I started doing narrative style shows. And so obviously, looking at who has done narrative style shows that I've listened to a lot, consumed a lot, and, and even tried to study overtly, it was Anthony Bourdain and his TV show. It was Jad and Robert from Radiolab. 
to some extent, it was the things that Gimlet Media was doing, although I think I started right before they they started uh, their company. So I felt myself drawing on them, almost imitating them down to some micro moments in the way I sounded. But I always thought to myself, as long as I keep in mind trying to infuse it with me and having an intent to be progressively better over time... I know I'll move away from that imitation organically and it won't feel like hollow artifice. Yeah. And I mean, like just just yesterday, I was listening to like an older episode of Weird Work for for repurposing some content um, and I was just going through it and I heard some of the questions I was asking and I was like, oh, that is funny. Like that was good. That was that was like a good moment where everything that I was trying to do, I wasn't paying attention and just asked a really straightforward question. And like, it's nice to look back and remember like, oh yeah, there was a certain, there was a certain goodness to like not knowing or not overthinking what you're doing and just ending up like with a great question, with something forward thinking, with something just like unique, not because you planned it, but just because you actually didn't have a plan in that situation. Back, back to the clip for a second. So there's a moment where he's about to explain the types of pizza. And you then, I don't know if it's edited in or if it was spoken, but either way, you kept it in, in the edit. He almost tees up the concept of explaining his job to you or explaining the, the industry he's into you. There's a pause, then there's music, then there's his answer. I see the pizza world is split into like three different categories of international pizza operations. So the first one is uh, the the big four American chains. How intentional are those tiny moments? Intentional, very intentional. The first thing is like, you'll, if you listen to Weird Work, that music comes up relatively frequently. There's often points in episodes where things need to be explained in a relatively short period of time. And we, we generally use that particular music to explain it. So like another example is there's an episode I help repair vintage arcade games. And we use the same music within that episode to be like, this is how an arcade game works. And like, these are the different parts and you go through each different part. And so it's like one, giving that pause and then cutting in the music is useful because it works as a signal to people who have listened to the show before. This is an educational moment. And then for other people, it's kind of a nice cue to start paying a little bit more attention. Because one of the things that's super interesting is like dead space, just like even a little brief moment of silence is kind of disconcerting when you're listening to something. And so it instantly gets you focused just because there's not any noise. It's almost like like when you're in control of the edit, it feels like you're kind of shifting gears, like you're driving a car and it's really smooth, but you're making these subtle shifts in your gears. And it's like when you're in control on a stage as a speaker or when you're a host as a podcaster, like creative work, I feel like has these little moments that others don't notice, but behind the scenes, you're kind of controlling it and making these little moves. And one of those moves is, you know, think about white noise. When someone is listening to white noise, it kind of absorbs into the background after at first you really noticed it. And that could be people talking. Because maybe you're washing the dishes, maybe you're walking the dog or driving to work, especially with audio, there's other stuff in your view. And so there's therefore other stimuli hitting your brain. And by saying nothing for a moment, all of a sudden you're like, wait a sec, what's going on? And it's subconscious, but it's super powerful. And I just don't see marketing teams and marketers using silence to their advantage. It's like so beautiful because you're literally, you're not doing it in post. You can do it in the moment. So people talk about resource constraints. They're like, I'd love to edit like NPR or whatever. But some of that stuff you can actually do live on the microphone, right? 
Yeah. So there's there's two things that I think about. Like one, I remember I, I was learning about what makes certain speeches more effective than other speeches. And people tend to remember the very beginning of statements and the very end of statements, right? Like you kind of tune out in the middle, except there's one exception where people's recall of a statement goes way up if the ho or if the person speaking struggles for a second. So you're more likely if I was like trying to explain something to you that there are 700,000 podcasts and there's 575 new podcasts released each day. That's one way I could say the statement. Another way I could say the statement is there's 700,000 podcasts out there. And um, I think there was like uh, 575 released each day, you know, and if you create even these like little bits of pauses or little bits of like kind of stumbling or fake stumbling, people are going to remember what comes right after that better than if you had said it as a straight statement. And so I think that's one thing as a, as a host I've been trying to get better at is like pausing and making sure that there's that space for both the guest and the host to take a break, the audience to hear a little bit of silence. And then all of a sudden, whatever comes right after that is going to be a lot stronger. The other thing that to me is like, as a host, sometimes if you just don't say anything and let the guests be a little bit uncomfortable in that silence, they're going to say something really cool. You're not going to say anything cool no, now? not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, no, that was it. That was the end. That was, see, it would have been great. You would have been hanging on every word for that one. But no, I had nothing at the end there. I was waiting for the next one. I was like, don't say anything. You can't say anything. You might say something cool. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I struggled with two things in this domain a lot. I still kind of do with the first one, which is when I edit together something that is is inherently pieced together. So a narrative style show like yours, like my show, Unthinkable, and to some degree, three clips, I sort of got uncomfortable with the silence between you and then me. So I would almost run together the end of your clip and the beginning of mine too much. And when I listened to it in the car, I was really noticing how it disables your ability to absorb what the first person said because you've moved too quickly to what the second person said. So I realized that unlike with, say, when you write a blog post, you can put the whole meal in front of someone and they can kind of tuck into it how they see fit. And if they need a break, that's fine. Or they need to go back to something, that's fine. With audio, you might put the whole meal in front of them, but you're, you're sitting with them as a host, as a guide, and in a way that doesn't really exist in writing. And you're spoon-feeding them one thing at a time. And you kind of have to make sure they chew and swallow first, and then you can move on to the next thing. Because if you don't, you have, you have like too many implied questions and they've lost you. I think though, even with blog posts, if you look at the way like normal, let's say articles in like the New York Times or something like that are written versus a lot of blog posts, you notice though in blog posts, like paragraphs will be a single sentence. You know what I mean? It'll be like one sentence and then there'll or one or two sentences and then there'll be a line break and then there'll be like another two sentences and stuff like that. So even in that type of content, you see people starting to like break it up more frequently, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I I do. Part of it might be the way people's attention works, but I question our inability to consume long form things because we do if it's good enough, right? If the paragraph is written deftly and it's written beautifully, you don't care that there is no space. You're so absorbed in the flow of consuming it. So I think it kind of speaks to the disregard for the craft of writing a little bit. And it also speaks to maybe the 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 editor of Marketing Showrunners, Molly Donovan, she, she brought this to my attention actually during her interview process before I hired her. She said, there's this growing infantilization of content and brand 
where it almost disrespects the audience. It's like, here you go. We have to give you one line at a time because you're not going to pay attention. If we don't, like, we're going to be super cheery and have cartoons on our website because we have to play it. It's like, there's a fine line between it being colloquial and engaging and kind of arresting in your attention and too childish, too much like, here's a duck. The duck went in the water. Next page. Like the duck went swimming. You know, it's like there's there is this, I think, slow march to that a little bit too much. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah, it is funny to just to think about like how in some ways, like marketing does in a lot of ways treat the audience as like, I, I don't want to burden you. You know, like I don't want to burden you with like a complex thought or like a long paragraph or something that could take like a few minutes to read. But on the other hand, it does sort of like diminish the value of your content in a way of being like, yeah, it's really not this. There's no way this could be long form. I can't write this good enough to be long form. It's not engaging enough. It's like, well, if it's not engaging enough, maybe it's in the wrong format. Maybe that should have just been a tweet, not a blog post. Maybe you should just write a better article. Like, I don't know. There is a certain degree where I see where people are saying, I think it makes a lot of sense. But I hope personally that we start moving the other way to more and longer form writing. Right, right. So and I, I, I to close the loop, because that was a bit of a tangent. But to close the loop, I mentioned I struggled with two things when it comes to silence. The other is I used to say got it a lot when after everything you said, I'd say got it. And I realized you only have a few choices when somebody finishes speaking. So you can distill. I want to make sure you understand it as the listener. I'll extract the thing that stuck out, the thing I don't want you to miss. I'll distill. I could disagree because that's great content. And it also is arresting to the listener. But it, furthermore, it like dives into something that might be a misunderstanding. So it clarifies. So distill, disagree, or just move on. Just ask the next question. And so often when we talk over coffee in person, it's a little awkward. It's a little staccato. If it's like you finish talking and then I just ask a quick question. Usually there's some kind of banter. But in an interview, if you really pay attention to great interviewers, sometimes they say nothing but the question as the follow-up. And it just works because you're you're now focused on the answer as the viewer, as the listener. So you don't notice how it was a little broken for them to just come right back with a question. So I just want to call that out because I think we all struggle with this, the need to avoid awkward pauses. I think that's actually one of the harder things about listening back to your own work is like when I listen back and just hear myself going, yeah, huh? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like... You're like, could I not come up with any better words? Could I not think of any way to affirm it? Could I just shut the hell up in this situation? Why did I have to keep saying, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh? And like, I don't know, it is tough. It's something that now I try and regulate a little more, but it's definitely a habit to break. Okay, uh, let's play this last clip. It involves this guy's personal drama. So it's a little bit, it's not tough to hear, but it is definitely fraught. And, and I just want, maybe help me set up how insane this guy's family life and personal life really were. So his father was on the run from the government when he was a kid because he sold weed. He'd stashed some money in their yard or something like that. Do you remember what it was? Yep. So yeah, and he had uh, his father had stashed some money for basically like his college savings and things like that in a yard. And another family member, if I recall correctly, had uh, taken it. Right. And then there was another part of his life. He was making websites in Seattle, sending some money back home, basically trying to help his dad while he was a fugitive and sending him money. And then, then he says his dad surrendered and went to jail. So it's important for you know Anthony because he's now in the clear. And, and it was also important for Anthony to make a bunch of money just because of his childhood and his family life. And so he said to you in the show, he wanted to make a million dollars before age 21. I, I was expecting a much later age, but before age 21, that was his goal. 
And as he was beginning to make some money in Seattle building websites, you then jumped in and said this as the narrator. Back home, tragedy struck once more. And this time, it forever shaped who Anthony was to become. Like, it sounds like things are going like pretty swimmingly, you know, like you're well, sitting there. Well, Frankie, my, um, my sister's son, he died in a car accident right before his fifth birthday, which his birthday was the day um, before mine. And it was like, really like, you know, he was gonna be like, I was like, my whole life was geared around taking care of him. And um, so when he died, and so my sister, you know, I mean, lost her entire family, you know, in the course of like two, three years. Um, so when I went down there and, um, you know, we buried Frankie, I mean, you when you when you bury a child, it's like, you know, it's just kind of makes you question everything. And, you know, the fact that his father was murdered, and you know, it was it was pretty tragic, you know, and it was kind of like it was like I looked around and I was like, I don't really like working in like staring in front of a computer all day. Like, you will I there was a path that I probably could have, you know, become rich and very successful in the tech industry. Yeah. But I would have had to suppress kind of the love of coming into work every day like (laughs) that I did not have. You, if you pretend to be something like long enough, it's like you'll start to become that. And I started thinking about like when I was really happy was, you know, when I was in the restaurant industry, when I was cooking, you know. So I started from the bottom again. I quit, you know, the company and I took a year sabbatical. I kind of traveled around the world. So did you know that was part of his story before you talked to him? A little bit. I, we we knew a little bit that that was part of his story. Um, I hadn't heard it as in depth. And I don't think I knew, I didn't have a good sense of the timeline with his sister, that his sister both lost her husband and her child. So I, I didn't quite know that going into it. When you're, when you're listening to that in person interviewing him, you know, I, it's, it is such good tape. It's so rich. It's, it, it is, I keep using the word arresting, as in it prompts you to stay put, to continue listening. In public radio parlance, they call those driveway moments because you wouldn't want to get out of your car. You want to keep listening before, you know, when you pull into your driveway at the end of your drive. And so this was kind of a driveway moment. So it's got to be this weird mental gymnastics move that you have to pull off because I'm sure in the moment you're aware that this is really good tape, but you also have to somehow be sensitive to the, you know, how, how hard it is for maybe him to recount that, right? Yeah. And I mean, like situationally, when we were recording that, we were in the back of a pizza place. You know what I mean? So where we're sitting in the back of this pizza place when we're when we're doing it. And that definitely made the situation a lot different than I think being on the phone or anything else. It it was a little easier to not pay attention to the tape because it was like, I was so ready for the interview. I knew the questions we had to ask. I knew the things we needed to get get for tape to get for coverage and all that. And I think I was able to relax where I, I don't I don't think I really thought about it as it was happening. Like as we were talking about it, I, I wasn't it wasn't in my mind that this was really good tape. I was just only a hundred percent focused on the conversation at hand. That's so important. I mean, it's so hard to do anything but be mindful and be a good interviewer at the same time, which is part of the reason I love interviewing. It just like puts you in your flow and in the present moment. One of the things that you did, I thought really well there was in between him speaking. So if you go, if you zoom out from the clip and it's sort of his story and then there was some tragedy and then you jump in as a narrator later and you said, but tragedy struck again. And then you said what I thought was the best thing you said, which was, but this time, it forever shaped who Anthony would become. Talk to me about the decision to say something like that for the, for the listener's purposes. 
Yeah, because I mean, like we like we're working on a narrative show, right? In really like basic narrative, you have a character and something needs to happen to motivate that character to go on their journey, right? There has to be something that motivates or changes the hero's trajectory so that they go on their journey to become the person that they're going to become. So like, this was a good way to sort of set that up because you can picture it. Anthony is in this position where he's, he's very young. He's clearly incredibly smart and very talented. He has a successful website design company in Seattle. He's like barely in his twenties. You know what I mean? And it seems like there's such a clear path forward for him. But then something happens, which changes all that. So it's important for the listener to understand that like, this is a journey and that not all of these journeys start out in this like positive way. And some of the things that can cause these major changes are tragedies. And like, there's a lot of weird work guests who have had like it happens a lot in in weird work interviews where something tragic or something negative happens in somebody's life which causes them to go on this kind of larger life change and i think that that's an incredibly important part of the story to tell inherently everything you and i do is in some way reductionist like we're taking years of somebody's life and moments and emotions, many lost the time and not remembered when we talk with them. And then we're trying to squeeze it into something consumable like an episode. And so inherently, it's reductionist. It's not every moment. It's not the entire story. Nothing really ever is unless you're living it. So when you're being reductionist, I think you can go to an extreme form of reductionism, which is you just present one moment of conflict. Like every investor turned them down. They went to 35 investors in one day and they all said no. Or like there's some marketer out there who's like, I followed up with people 140 times with one prospect and then he said yes. So the lesson is follow up until you're blue in the face and people hate you, but one person says yes, right? Like this is the tendency we have as business storytellers. It's to pluck out the one conflict area to make it sound like a great story, but that's an extreme form of reductionism. So how do you present the conflict? It's such a messy question, but how do you present the conflict without it being like trite? You know, life is messy. It's not so simple. Yeah. Oh my God. I, it can be incredibly difficult. I think one of the things to me is to like, as a host, paying very good attention to the guest. And there's a lot of people who go on, you know, who go on shows, who end up on things and they get asked about the conflict for maybe a five minutes, like you mentioned, right? But they might want to say more about it. And people move on too quickly and they don't let the person talk about it and they don't let them get the story out. And so like, I think a lot of it is being able to read the person and saying like, what, like, what are the, how far are they comfortable going, right? That's one part is like allowing them to actually then sort of tell the story in a longer format in the way that they want to and they're comfortable with. But on the flip side, there are other moments you need to get to. And I hope this does not come across as like very uh, cold or anything, but you don't have an infinite amount of time to record. And if you're going to be with somebody, 
you have to think of the main parts of the story you need to get to. So like, we we can't spend the whole time talking about this this part because Anthony's only in Seattle at this point. He's got to go to Europe. He's got to come back. He's got to do other things. So like, we have to balance the other points in the story we need to hit without necessarily reducing or or over editing the way that he wants to explain this part of it. We we don't want to make the episode something that the show is not. And the show isn't necessarily just these like stories of tragedy about how people got into the situations they're in. The show is about weird jobs and how they did them and how they get to them. So I it's it's really a balancing act. I think it's something that if you are an empathetic person, if you are like sensitive to people's issues and how people receive information, you should trust your gut and trust how you feel if something is, is spending too much time on it or not enough time on it. If you're not one of those people, you should have other people listen to it. You know, like, I don't know. I, I don't quite know how to say to balance it, but it's it's something that you have to make these decisions and you have to say, like, is this moving the story that I want to tell a lot? That's Sam Balter, host of Weird Work, a HubSpot podcast. Three Clips is the official show of Marketing Showrunners, which is a media company that covers the growing movement of brands making shows. Recently on the site, we've looked at show bibles, documented strategy behind shaping refreshingly different shows. It's basically a forcing function for you to think better about the content you produce. It's about brains, not budget. And then we talked about the three things every CMO needs to see to justify increasing spend on a given show or network of shows. We've also deconstructed how NBC promotes its hit programs and what marketers can steal for hours. We do all kinds of stuff just like that to help advance this practice of marketers making shows. So you can subscribe to free to Marketing Showrunners at marketingshowrunners.com or use the link in the show notes. You'll be in good company with subscribers from MailChimp, Adobe, Red Bull, Roku, Amazon Prime, the BBC, Salesforce, and a lot more at marketingshowrunners.com. Remember, great marketing isn't about who arrives. It's about who stays. That's why making shows for our brands matters so much. It's about who stays. I'm Jay Akunzo, founder of MSR, and I have to say thank you for staying with me. We're back in a week next Monday with a new episode of Three Clips. Bye-bye.